the Manage Self Lead Others podcast and my name is Nina Sunday and I've got a fabulous guest today, someone I've met through the C-Suite Network, Dr. Helen Turnbull. And Dr. Helen Turnbull is an inclusivity, inclusion and diversity expert. She's written a book, The, uh, the Illusion of Inclusion. She's got a PhD in, uh, it's organisational behaviour. Yes, and a human and organisational systems, yep. And you've also got uh, undergraduate degrees in psychology and sociology. And the other curious thing is you have taken tea with the Queen. I have indeed, yes. <laughs> I actually knew a person that taught courses on how to take tea with the Queen. You're the first person I've ever met. Who's actually I done it, right? <laughs> to have lunch with Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. What, what brought that about? So I was, I was president of the Open University when I did my undergraduate and there were 45,000 students and I represented that student body. And it was the 10th anniversary of the Open University. So they had two events, one of them at the university where I sat next to Prince Philip for lunch. And that was really amazing. And then I was also invited to Buckingham Palace for the, the garden party where I had iced coffee and cucumber sandwiches. So. Oh, well, well <laughs> that's a very special part of your personal history and I'm excited to hear about it. The other thing is, you've because I'm in Australia and uh, you, you work globally in the USA, UK and Australia, you've actually consulted with some Australian enterprises such as the Commonwealth Bank and QBE Insurance to help them win awards. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you consult companies to help them win, what is it, an inc inclusivity award or? Well, yes, uh, th thank you, Nina. Actually, um, I spent about three and a half to four years commuting from here to Australia to Sydney, working with Commonwealth Bank, with the Reserve Bank, with National Australia Bank, with Ernst & Young, QBE and Grain Corp. So a lot of different Australian companies, um, the Commonwealth Bank, used uh, one of my three psychometric assessment tools called Cognizant, which measures unconscious bias. And they won the Catalyst Award, which is a major award on gender work. And it actually is based in the US, but it's global. And they won it in 2012 as a result of my work with them. And also QBE Insurance, where we put 450 of the top leaders through the same assessment tool, they won the um, ARI, the Australian Human Resource Institute Employer of the Year Award in, I believe I want to say 2013 or 14. So I've, I've got... Yeah, I was just going to say, why is it important uh, for an organisation to win such an award? Why is it important for organisations to be thinking about inclusion and diversity? It's important for companies to strive to win these awards for two reasons. One is it gives them recognition that they're at the top of their game, that they're really working on these issues and that they know how to do it. That allows them to be advisors and mentors to other companies. It's obviously good press, but the other issue is that the fact that they want to go for that inspires the leaders. Uh, so leaders like measurements, leaders like to say we're, we're the best at this. And so when you win an award, that's certainly one of the, the prestige value of the Catalyst Award, then you're really making a statement about your sincerity to do this work. 
So really, any leader should be thinking about what award can our team strive for because then it gives a secondary reason why they should lift their game and it makes your job as leader that much easier. Yes. True genius, Dr. Helen. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Now, in your is it in your book that you talk about the three immutable forces? Yes, I, I wrote a book. Um, a bit, well, it was published in 2015. Yeah. So I actually started it in 2014. And it's called The Illusion of Inclusion. And what I advocate is that there are three immutable forces around inclusion and four permeable forces. What I wanted to do was to capture in one place, namely the book, the idea that that having an inclusive workplace is more work than it sounds. Uh, And so um, what I said was that there's three immutable forces. And what I mean by that is that there's three things that will never change. They are not going to go away no matter how hard we work on them. And the first of these three is dominance. There is always going to be a dominant culture. And we know that in our relationships, if you just look individually, whether you're in a long-term relationship or short-term, you realize that at some point, one person in that relationship is is in charge. They're the one making the decisions. The other person is deferring. And that shifts over time. Uh, And the same thing is true in organizations and the same thing is true in society at large. Dominance will always be there who is dominant will not always be the same. And we are seeing worldwide the demographics changing, but the dynamic of dominance is really about power and privilege. So when we talk about different cultures, different genders, different race, gender identity, we have to look at how power and privilege plays out in that conversation. If you're a leader who's serious about this work, you need to understand the dynamics of dominance. You need to understand how your power and privilege is playing out. And you need to understand how it's impacting other people. Um, The second immutable force is unconscious bias. Um, You can learn about your unconscious biases, which I advocate people should, but you're never going to get rid of them. Um, I did a a TED talk in... um, I don't know what year it was, 2013, I think, uh, where I talked about my unconscious bias towards female uh, pilots. I had boarded a flight in Dallas, Texas, and it was, eight, I'll never forget, it was 8.15 at night, and I looked in the, in the pilot's uh, cabin and realized there was a woman flying the plane, 7.57 back to Fort Lauderdale, and my stomach turned over, and I said, oh, gosh, Maybe I'll, maybe I'll get off the flight and fly home tomorrow. And then I said, no, hold, hold on a minute, Helen. You're a diversity consultant. You're not meant to think like this. And I realized that- to the surface and you didn't know it was there until it happened. It was absolutely stunning. But what I did realize in that moment was that my unconscious bias that I had not seen before was that competent airline pilots were tall, they were white, they were male, They had silver gray hair, preferably, and they looked like they were Air Force or Navy. Now, they could fly the plane. I wasn't sure that she could, right? But but 15 years later, I was flying from Canberra to Sydney in a, a small Qantas commuter flight, and I was halfway to Sydney when a female voice came over the intercom and said, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for flying Qantas. We will be arriving in Sydney shortly. It's a beautiful day and thank you for flying with us. 
and I thought, there's a woman speaking. And I looked at the, the um, flight attendant and she wasn't moving her mouth. And I suddenly <laughs> realized I had a female pilot and I forgot to check. And so there it is again, 15 years later, it revisited me. Now, thankfully this time I didn't have the same silly reaction. But what I, the point of my story really is that unconscious biases don't go away. They just kind of live somewhere in the back of your neck. And if you're not conscious of them, uh, you really have to get them from the back of your neck to the edge of your shoulder so that you can spot them in your peripheral vision before you make decisions, before you speak up, before you open your mouth and say, excuse me, I'd like to get off this flight, um, that, that you really have to be aware of them. Yes, you don't know what's actually sitting in the back of, well, well is it your lizard brain that is responding this way? <laughs> it's like your, 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 your survival brain. Uh, right. Something triggers that. Yes, that's when you're. Uh, but if you know that there is such a thing as unconscious bias, you'll be able to name it. Yes, you can name it. The thing is, I know a lot about unconscious bias, but it doesn't stop it visiting me. Mm. And that's the piece that I wanted people to realize is I don't care how well how well you uh, educated you are about this topic. It's still going to be there. And therefore, you have to be vigilant about it. Most companies talk about, well, that person's not a good fit for the job or not a good fit for the company. What do we think we mean by not a good fit? We obviously have a, a mental model, an image in our heads, and sometimes it's code for that person's not the right gender or the right diversity or doesn't dress properly. Absolutely. And what's the third immutable? So, so the third one is a little more complicated. It's called degrees of difference. And that's a term that, that I came up with to describe the fact that we tend to be almost um, bipolar, and I don't mean that in a mental health way, in the way we describe diversity issues as black and white, it's male and female, it's younger or older, et cetera, et cetera. And, and really, we have degrees of difference along every horizontal axis. And, and so we can't just lump people together and say all men are this way and all women are that way, or we need to fix the men. We have to be able to recognize that there's diversity amongst men too. And so what I'm advocating is that we really have to understand that inside each group, there are degrees of difference. And the reason that's important is because most corporations take what I call a, they, they work the vertical axis. So they say, let's make sure we train the men and women at the top, and then we'll trickle down some kind of diversity program to the rest of the organization. We don't always do the work on the horizontal axis. And so we can't just say, let's train on gender, let's do race, let's do culture. We have to also pay attention to what work do each of these groups need to do on the horizontal axis. So you know, that's the degrees of difference. I've been reading uh, Seth Godin's latest book, The Practice, and mm -hmm. he gives us a metaphor of being the, uh, the in, in, a, in any team or any small group, there's being one divergent factor that actually makes the harmony. And he used the case of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. He said, Neil Young's voice was very different to the rest. But had Neil Young not been part of it, when it was just Crosby, Stills, Nash, they had a certain um, homogeneous quality to it. Mm -hmm. But when Young joined it, it kind of took off. That was a perfect example of that metaphor of something 
that is different actually making uh, this, uh, making the whole better. There's the right. whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So you talk now about the four permeable factors. So it sounds like they're the ones that can change. Yes, they're the ones that we could make a difference with if we paid more attention. The first one is affinity bias. And affinity bias we all have, and is sometimes called mini-me syndrome. It's the idea that I feel comfortable. You and I are white women. I've been to Sydney, Australia. I am British, uh, even although I live in the States. When I first came to Sydney, I felt immediately at home. And I thought, what's happening here? And I realized that there was more of a, if you like, almost British culture that I was comfortable and familiar with. And, and so affinity bias is, who are we comfortable with? Who, who, who can we laugh with? Whose sense of humor appeals to me? Who can I speak in shorthand to? Who do I get along with? And who, am I, who, who do I keep at a distance? Who am I not familiar with? Whose accent is not pleasing to my ear or difficult for me to understand? And so affinity bias causes me to have a smaller circle of influence than I might have if I were willing to, to expand my, my circle. And so what I say to my clients is affinity bias is not going to go away. What I challenge you to think about is who are you excluding and what work would you need to do to bring more people in? Who it is it that- the Workplace as simple as uh, creating social events that women with children can't participate in because they have to be home for their kids. Uh, what yes. are some other examples of how that might uh, disadvantage some groups in the workplace? So, for example, introvert and extrovert. And when you attach that to culture, um, quite often you'll hear people say that people in Asian cultures are quieter and therefore they're not always invited to speak. They're not always listened to. Or people with accents that are more difficult for us to understand, people whose name I can't pronounce. And so rather than me face that, I will just avoid speaking to you. I will avoid including you. I will rationalize that you're quiet and you didn't speak up and that's on you and not on me. One uh, and of the so that, uh, my research is, is uh, yielding is that conversational equality in team meetings is so important for ultimate psychological safety and that managers need to find ways to invite people to share their opinion even after the fast talkers have uh, dominated the conversation. Is that Absolutely. Yeah. One of the simple things that leaders can do, Nina, is to go around the room, even if it's a Zoom room, and ask each person to speak without interruption. So I, I might start a meeting by saying, you know, let's talk about what you're bringing to the table today, what's on your mind, and hear from every single person. Absolutely. Now, people think that's time consuming, but what it buys you, and I'm sure that you're on board with this, is an incredible amount of loyalty and commitment because two things have happened. One is I feel heard by you. And two is you just sent a message to the entire group that everyone's voice in this room matters. And in fact, there are examples even from the corporate world. A really good one is uh, the, uh, the Volkswagen company when they tried to cheat the uh, the software for diesel engines and emissions, where they, in fact, when it was found out, it caused a big furore. 
I think yeah. I think a CEO went to prison. They shrunk their workforce by seven thousand and decided to uh, go back to the drawing board and come back in a few years' time with an electric car. And the uh, the interim CEO at the time who took over, Matthias Muller, was saying that engineers and project managers need to speak up. He didn't use the word groupthink, but effectively that's what it was. It's like the people that thought it was a great idea were took over, dominated the conversation. The ones mm -hmm. that were risk averse, they weren't listened to or they weren't didn't feel comfortable to speak up. Now right. that's a corporate disaster. And so this is where inclusion and diversity and encouraging people to everybody to uh, have an opinion becomes yep. so important. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's work. And, and then the second permeable force is assimilation. And assimilation is um, connected to it's kind of the other side of the coin to the impact of affinity bias. What it means is that people who are not dominant are doing a lot in order to fit in. And so what do I have to do to assimilate, to fit in, to be acceptable? And that everyone is doing that to some degree. Uh, Deloitte um, University did a study a few years ago that they called Covering. And it's an excellent article. It talks about the fact that everybody, including straight white men, are doing something to fit into the corporate world. We all kind of put our professional face on and uh, we go to work. And so we're holding back a little bit of our authentic self. But what we want people to be able to do is to bring their best self to work. But what, what my, my PhD dissertation is on the subject of assimilation and covering, and the article from Deloitte is excellent, that, that really makes the point that women and people of color, people who are gay and lesbian, et cetera, are holding back more than others. And so we're, we're assimilating to the mainstream culture, which really says that leaders are not getting our best selves. They're getting because an they're assimilated self. of idiosyncrasy. Mm -hmm. um, they, they, they want people to, if they don't understand it, it's kind of dismissed as, oh, you know, that's just, that's just you, but we don't have to take note of that. That is kind of the implied uh, conversation. What behaviour then should managers be encouraging? We want professional dress in the workplace, but we want also tolerance of, um, of personal self-expression as well. So yes. is that a tricky, tricky path? That's a, that's a, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky one, but here's the deal. It's what I say to people is don't bring your whole self to work. Keep that stuff at home or for the weekend. Bring your best self to work. And to leaders, what I say is create an environment that allows people to bring their best self, to bring their creative self, their innovative self, the, their commitment rather than their compliance. If you create an environment where people feel valued and it sounds easy, but we know it's not, um, then people will, will want to be there and will bring their best. That's people wonderful. withhold their ideas, Nina, when they don't feel valued. They, they do. They will, will withhold their ideas. And yeah. if it's the reason I'm self-employed now for 30 years because no one wanted my ideas. And I, well, I, it wasn't I went, I'll take my ball and go home. It, circumstances happened. I left the company and two years later I went, hey, I've got all these ideas. I think I'll start trying them. Right, exactly, yeah. So, so uh, yeah, you, you've got to listen to creative people and, and see, if you, see what, you know, 
which ideas will, will actually gel with the organisation. And I think the Google company allows people to work 10% on their own projects that ultimately mm -hmm. uh, become of uh, that, you know, applied within the company, but they give people a chance to express their creativity. Right, right. Yeah, yeah um, so the, there are the more, third there are more perme fa permeable factors. I want to get through to them. <laughs> right. The third one is uh, political correctness. I think we all suffer from that. It's a very, um, I think it's really kind of an American phenomenon in a sense, but I do believe it happens worldwide. And it's the idea that we've become afraid to speak to each other across differences, mm -hmm. that we're, we're walking on eggshells. We're a little bit careful. Or I can't ask you a question about your cultural difference or how you feel about racism because you might misunderstand my question. Mm -hmm. I can't give you honest feedback in my performance evaluation review because you might accuse me of being racist. And so I'm going to pick my words. I'm going to be very careful how I talk to you. That doesn't serve us well. It doesn't serve uh, the person we're giving feedback to and it doesn't serve us as leaders. The problem is how do we, how, I have, when I was writing my book, um, it was 2015 and, it, and, and I was aware of the political environment in the US. And I, began, I, I started out thinking we need to get rid of political correctness. And then I backed off and thought, oh no, maybe we don't. Maybe <laughs> we need a little bit more of it. Um, but actually I redefined PC to mean polite consideration. I think it's critically important that we allow each other some grace as we talk across differences, that we're not afraid of each other. And it boils down to trust too, because if we talk about the emotional bank account in soft skills, which is if you have got a relationship of rapport and if you accidentally transgress and accidentally offend someone, they'll actually give you uh, leeway because the relationship is intact and you've got that rapport and they'll actually even say well you realize they might even give feedback and say you realize when you say that I read it as and just give that feedback whereas if you don't have that trust offense will be taken so it's really important that managers maybe set up their own one-on-one -on -one meetings with their uh, individual contributors so that that element of trust can start to grow and be well, and, and I think it's not just individual trust. I mean, you're absolutely right. But I think the other issue is the systemic nature of constantly being mistreated. Now, Dr. Helen, what you're telling me suggests to me that there's a great opportunity for both experienced and aspiring managers to actually pick up the inclusion and diversity cause and not so much to become a you know card carrying or a sign carrying member, but just to find opportunities to uh, observe your own uh, reactions, uh, your own language, your own responses, and be willing to speak up about it if you see uh, lack of inclusion happening at team meetings, for example. Mm -hmm. And in fact, become become part of the solution to change enterprises to be more inclusive because the very fact that you're going the extra mile or being conscientious to do a little bit extra in that realm means that you will be at the forefront of change that is sounds like is inevitable. And I say when I do my keynotes, I often say to the to leaders, um, if I could give you a 10% increase in your bottom line productivity, 
would you be interested? I've never had a leader say, no, they're not interested. And what I'm advocating is if you figure out how to do inclusion properly, you will get more commitment instead of compliance. You will get more loyalty. You will get more creativity. And you will gain exponentially from having an inclusive work environment. It's that important. The earlier episode of this podcast is Michael McQueen talking about if the organization focuses on purpose first, it ultimately increases their profitability. So by taking your eye off just the results ball and mm -hmm. looking at the culture ball, mm -hmm. which is, uh, who was it said, uh, Jack Welch, uh, culture eats results for breakfast. In other words, yes. we yes. have to focus on culture and, 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 and the profitability looks after itself because you're, you're, if people just do their job, they're not actually putting in that extra effort that sometimes is required because they'll go, well, that's not my job. I'm being paid right. to do this, right. but I, I'm not being paid to do it. So they'll start cutting hairs and, mm. uh, and not really giving all of themselves. And what you want is a team that pitches in. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. Now, exactly. there's another permeable factor. There's one, there's one left. Uh, it's called um, stereotype threat. And it, it's a little bit complicated. Basically what it is, is that if you continue to get negative messages about your group, um, then you take these messages on and you start acting out of them. So for example, women for years have been told we're the subordinate culture, we're not really welcome, we, we, we make emotional decisions, etc. And And that at some level, what women do is they internalize that. It's the internalized oppression that we take in the messages, gay people, um, LGBTQI people do the same thing. They take on the negative messages that society puts on them. People of color do the same thing. Uh, and um, we have to work hard to overcome these messages about ourselves. Uh, what it does in terms of gender, what it does, it causes women not to necessarily get along with each other. So this myth that women all trust each other is not true. We have work to do just within our culture as a group of women. Part of the work is caused by the negativity that we've taken on about who we are in the world. And when you do the psychometric testing, what attributes are you testing for? So I have three psychometric assessment tools. One of them looks at inclusion skills gaps. So we're looking to help leaders to see individually and collectively that there are skills gaps in their organization around inclusion. The second one is a gender gap assessment, which looks specifically at gender gaps and allows leaders to talk about how we're all feeling about how well we're doing relative to gender. And the third one is cognizant, which is about unconscious bias. And the reason I developed all of them, Nina, was I realized that leaders value measurement. And what I wanted to be able to do was help leaders to see that they have some skin in the game. They can't just delegate this to HR and say, go figure out a training program. They have to recognize that the way they're thinking and the way that the amount of work they've done around inclusion is influencing how the organization behaves. Is this, uh, are these tests that just the managers uh, take or is it something that the manager and the team take? The team takes as well, yes. Um, they can be rolled out, it, the ISM and the gender gap can be rolled out across the entire organization. Cognizant 
tends to be, well, we put 550 leaders at Commonwealth Bank through Cognizant and National Australia Bank, it was about the same number. So was QBE. So it can be large groups of people. So yeah, was there any challenge in trying to get all the leaders on board? Surely not everybody would go, oh yeah, this is something we have to do. Yeah, there's always challenges. It's, it's never easy to bring this topic to the table. And because uh, usually people are like, listen, I've got plenty to do. Do I really need to talk to you about this? Uh, and so I actually had somebody in Australia said to me, um, came in to have an interview with me and said, oh, so you're not an American, huh? And I said, no. And he said, okay, good. <laughs> So we started from there. You know what, um, there is some, um, there's definite unconscious bias in Australia against uh, people from the United States. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, I was introduced to that very quickly. So absolutely. I think I relate back to World War II, <laughs> where America came to save us. Thank you, America. But right. we were over here and taking our women. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've stayed ever since. But um, but no, uh, actually, some of the best ideas, uh, some some of the juiciest ideas come from the United States. So that's a big error. Right, uh, right. You, you've actually embraced the USA as your home. Yes, I, I've been living here since 1980. It's home now. Uh, my mother actually came over first after my dad died, and we all followed her over. So oh, Fort Lauderdale seemed better than <laughs> than the rain in Scotland. But actually, I miss Scotland as well. So. So what sort of advice would you give to a, a manager that's working? They might be in a family business. They might be in a you know, small to medium enterprise. Um, what, how can they get the ball rolling? Who has to be on board? Is it the owner or the, the chief executive officer or is it the HR manager? Who has to be on board to, uh, to get something like this rolling? Well, I think in small to medium-sized companies, um, it really has to be the owner or the whoever is the chief executive officer. In the larger corporations, it tends to be the, the C-suite and the HR department or the chief diversity officer. And the, there's already a vision statement, a mission, and, and there, there's programs underway. But with the smaller companies, I've talked to a couple of people, for example, at the C-suite who have 35 employees and are interested in, you know, how, how do I get started in this? And I think the first piece is that person has to be sincere about doing their own work, but they also have to look around and see there's a difference, Nina, between diversity and inclusion, because for me, diversity is the demographics and inclusion is the work environment. So the first thing for a small company to do is look around and say, how diverse is my employee base? How diverse is my leadership team? And then how inclusive are we being? Because it's possible to have a diverse workforce and not be inclusive. And it's possible to have an, an inclusive workforce and not be diverse. And so the question becomes, how diverse are you? And how diverse do you want to be? How diverse are you willing to be? And what are you doing to, to create a truly inclusive workplace? I can remember uh, it would be about 12 years ago now uh, or so, uh, I, I hired a, a gap year student who was going to work four days a week and it was very interesting. I mean, I, I uh, must have interviewed uh, half a dozen uh, students that were on the, going to be do, doing uni the next year. And it's interesting, um, 
some came in in very casual gear, hair all messed like they were rock stars. And this one Indian lad came in in a suit. He was very quietly spoken, probably a bit of an introvert. His name was Lagesh. And I, I, I actually decided to hire him and part of me wanted to ask him to change his name because he was going to be on the phone to Clive, change his name to an Anglo name. And I resisted it. And I'm really glad I did. <laughs> Proud of you. Yes. But, yes. But honestly, I had my own tug of war. It's like, will clients think we're based, we've got an offshore team in India? Will, will they? But you know what? He was one of the best people I ever had working for yeah. me as a, yeah. a gap student. He's now a doctor. He's right. a very fine doctor. So, um, But I mean, I think your story there is, is an example of how we need to catch ourselves, that you caught yourself. It came from the back of your neck. I want him to change his name. And then you went, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that. That doesn't feel good. And that's the work that we have to do is how does our privilege show up? How does our entitlement show up, you know? My only question now, after speaking with you, before that, we had another Asian, uh, he, he was actually a graduate that wanted, uh, he was going to be moving, moving cities. So he didn't want a corporate job and he was happy to take the job with us. And he was with us for about a year. He was Asian. He had an Asian name, but he called himself Sean. Mm -hmm. And I never said to him, what's your real name? Why don't we, why? I mean, that would have taken guts. Yeah. I was happy that he was Sean. <laughs> so right. if, if truth be told. But really, if I was if I was on the inclusion and diversity train, I would have said, let's use your real name. Mm -hmm. unless, unless he says, Oh no, no, that is my real name. That's his right. Story. Or he says, I'm really comfortable with that now. Yes. I mean, I, I think it, it but you raise a good point. I mean, I, if somebody says to me, I'm CJ, eventually I'll say, So what's your real name? And, and are you okay with CG or would you prefer that I call you your real name? So, And I'll tell you something, when I was at the ABC, well, I'm actually good with languages and I don't mind that, but my first um, supervisor was Jean-Paulo, but everybody called him GP. He said, just call me GP. I said, no, mm. Jean-Paulo, that is your name. And I called him Jean-Paulo from then on. I can't right. speak Italian, but I could at least speak his name with the accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, look, it's been fascinating talking with you, Dr. Helen. Um, just tell us the name of your book and, and where, where we can get it. So the book is called The Illusion of Inclusion, and you can get it on Amazon. That's probably the best place to access it. And uh, uh, as I say, it's, it really is kind of a seminal work in terms of the way I approach this work. My work is very non-threatening. You know, This can be hard work because, as you were saying earlier, people can come to it with a little bit of arms folded and resistance. Uh, and yet uh, the way that I do the work is very inclusive and uh, people come away thinking, wow, Helen, you really made me think about things that I hadn't realized. So, And what's lovely, I can tell through the, the way you express uh, these ideas that you don't make people wrong for having got that little voice at the back of their head that they didn't even know was there and that you're right. helping people bring it out onto their shoulder so that they can actually face it and go, is this attitude serving me? Is it right. serving my team? And is it serving the results for the organisation? So the, I think there's we've got this, uh, it, it's a bit of an old concept now, the triple bottom line, which is we can't, organisations can't just search for results and managers 
can't, their job isn't just, you know, what do the stats say about turnover and revenue and all of that. Right. Culture now is part of a, of a manager's role. And yes. this seems to me to be a very, um, very important one. It is. And I, I think, as you said, what Jack Welsh said is that, you know, culture eats numbers for breakfast. And, and I think that's absolutely true. It sometimes feels like you want me to slow down and listen to people. <laughs> yeah, actually, I do, because you'll get more from them in the end at the end of the day. Right. So yeah, it's investing time to save time. And actually, yeah. the overarching is employee engagement. Isn't that right? That's correct. So this is one pathway to mm -hmm. create increased employee engagement. So I never really put the two and two together before, Helen. I just thought it was political correctness, but now I realize well, And you know what's interesting is the Gallup poll every year puts out an employee engagement survey. And for 2019, they said that 65% of employees are disengaged at work. And 15% of that are actively disengaged. And I would advocate that if you can figure out how to do inclusion properly, you will close that gap. So it's that important. Well, people can find you at humanfacets.com. Yes, humanfacets.com. And my email is Dr. Helen Turnbull at Human Facets. Yeah. Wonderful speaking with you, Dr. Helen. Truly inspiring. And your, your insights go extremely deep. It's a privilege speaking with you today. Thank you. I was delighted to be invited. Thank you. And have a very safe and happy 2021. Likewise to you, Dr. Helen. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.